from high school championships to the Super Bowl, we all understand the importance of spirit. So how did the eternal God of the universe choose to ignite wind and fire in the group that was responsible to tell the world about his son's death and resurrection? Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, for a powerful look at Pentecost when the wind and the fire came and the Spirit birthed the church. When the new classifications from Midlothian High School came out, the numbers were really up. We didn't build another high school, and we're all jammed into one gigantic high school. We're all labeled 5A. I'll never forget, as the news started spreading out, the idea was that Midlothian was being trampled in 4A. It was like all the football powers in 4A had their foot on our neck. They were killing us. I mean, we hadn't been to the playoffs. You'd have to look back in the covered wagon days. There was a malaise. There was a spirit of gloom. I remember, forget, going to one of the clubs in town, and everybody was laughing around the tables about how we're just going to get totally destroyed. Anybody remember that? Well, the athletic director, by the way, he's a UT graduate and actually worked at UT. I'm just putting that in. He had a different viewpoint. He looked at a whole bunch of people that had different jobs. And, and one of the things he was looking for was that a coach that had belief, that had spirit. And so they brought in a new coach and you all know the result. If you don't think that spirit is important in a group, you need to just look at Midlothian. I mean, we came within a hairbreadth of going to the playoffs, and who knows what's going to happen next year. How did the coach do it? There were techniques that are used. Right now, the whole Dallas-Fort Worth area is in one of the biggest time periods of generating spirit. What's going to happen a week from now? Now, I want you to stop and think, what are some of the things? You have one of the greatest secular events that takes place around the world, millions upon millions of people. The biggest crowd that have ever set their eyes on Texas Stadium is going to happen this Sunday. What are some of the things you've noticed already that they've been doing to generate spirit? Raise your hand and tell me, what are some of the things they've done to generate spirit so far? Okay, every Super Bowl athlete, billboards are out there. So billboards is a parable, great big splashes on the billboards over town. What are some of the other things that they've done? Okay, parties. So you have parties. Why do you have all these parties? Everybody gets fired up. And, and they also, what do they do at a lot of those parties? Okay. <laughs> so they're going to be, the spirits are going to be flowing in a lot of those parties. What else have you noticed that they've done? The NFL experience, all right? Tori just told me before we started church today, he went yesterday to the, the NFL experience. I noticed Channel 8 was really into the NFL experience. Mary and I actually started laughing because when they opened the NFL experience, Dale Hansen was there, the weatherman was there, everybody was there, and they kept talking. What did they talk about? Great crowds. They talked about great crowds. But the camera was out there and there was no crowd at all. But there was a group that was there, which gives another idea of how you generate spirit in our society. You need to listen carefully. You're in business. This is how you generate spirit. Have you ever noticed how you use bands? Why is it that you use bands in a football game? If you go to A&M and they come out all strong and they have the spirit of the core, they use a band. Da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Why do you do that? 
Whether it's war or a football game, that's how you generate spirit. They're doing that for the Super Bowl. They had a band that was playing. Hardly anyone was there, but there was a band that was playing because they're starting to do that. They also start talking about, we're going to have thousands of people there. Now, I got news for you. There's some of you that you sit there and you go, there's hardly anybody there. There's about 10 people waiting to get in. All that they have is the band. You're a cynical person. How many of you are thinking that right now? This is a bunch of baloney. I can't believe the band is playing. There's not going to be anybody at the NFL experience. Look at what's starting out. Anybody think like that? Don't ever hire them to be your promoters because they'll never generate spirit. Tory was excited. He went yesterday. I asked him how many people were there. He said there were a lot of people there. That's how you generate that. I want you to know that out there in the world system, there's powerful ways that you generate spirit. You generate an attitude. You generate a power. When President Obama spoke to the Joint Congress, you had a powerful illustration of how they generated spirit. First of all, they tried to generate a spirit of unity. So what did they do with the form of the Congress? Something that they've never done. They didn't divide the house. We just had a congressman shot in our nearby state. So what did they do with the form? They all sat together. They had Democrats and Republicans that hate each other. But they sit together because the form is important. That's how you generate spirit. President Obama didn't get up there and said, you know, we have the worst education imaginable. We are behind the Chinese in math and in engineering and in science. And you know what? In our economics, we're losing the game. We're not having many exports. Things are going in the tank. And we're also way behind in transportation systems. I mean, China is building a gigantic train system that is going to be faster than a speeding bullet. And the United States is not ever going to do it, I don't think. It's a horrible thing that's happening in our nation. We actually, right now, are in a terrible malaise, and we're not going to ever get out of it. Is that what the president said? No, that's not what the president By the way, all the things that I just mentioned are things he mentioned in the speech. The need in our educational system, the need in our economics, the need in technology. But you know what President Obama did? You need to understand what he said. He talked about when I was a little kid, when John Kennedy got up and, and in a powerful speech, Russia had just put the Sputnik into space first. They beat us. And they were invading space. The Cold War was hot as anything. It wasn't cold. It was brimming. Man, nuclear war could break out. It was scary. And the United States was in a deep malaise. We were behind. It looked like communism was going to take over the world. So what did John F. Kennedy do? He said, we're going to put a man in the moon. Now, those of you that are cynical, you sit here and go, it's impossible. It was impossible. The engineering wasn't there. The science wasn't there. The rockets weren't there. But all of you in this room remember when we put a man in the moon. And now you live in a world where there's no longer the powerful movement of communism, only in rare places like North Korea. That's the power of spirit. As you sit here today, do you have spirit? Do you have an attitude deep inside of you? Do you have power? And I just talked to you about the power of spirit in your business, in government, in the whole world scene. Do you ever ask yourself a question, how does God generate spirit in a group of believers. What does he do when he has 120 people 
They had the original 12, and they lost one of them because he betrayed the Lord Jesus, so they replaced them. Mattathias now joins the 12. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene that was there that had seven demons cast out from her. You got this small group of 120 people. Jesus has just told them, you are going to become witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, those of you that have the attitude, no one's going to come to the NFL experience. The United States is never going to do better in education. Those of you that have that cynical attitude, you would have really good reason for being negative, for being cynical, for feeling this could never happen. And maybe you feel that about your own life. Maybe you feel that about your family life. Maybe you feel that about your church family, whatever it might be. I want you to ask yourself, what's your spirit today? And the question we're going to ask yourself is, how in the world does the Lord God of heaven bring spirit? How does he change attitudes? Where does he bring power? Does he bring big billboards? Does he use massive media techniques? Down through the centuries, he's used all those things. But I'm going to talk to you today about the most powerful thing that God does when he wants to bring spirit. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look in Acts chapter 2 at wind and fire. The Holy Spirit gives birth to his church. And in Acts chapter 2, we have the beginning, the very first time that the Holy Spirit came. Now, as soon as I mentioned the Holy Spirit, some of you that are from a charismatic background, and a lot of you are from that background, you go, amen, man, we need the Holy Spirit. And you were raised. People jumped up and down. They yelled and screamed. They spoke in ecstatic languages. And some of you, that's your whole background. There's also some here that if anybody ever jumped and started speaking in an ecstatic language, you're out of here. We've got all different branches. Some of you are from liturgical churches. Man, everything's supposed to be orderly. You have in your hands the special liturgy. We have many of you that are from free churches where you're used to hell, fire, and damnation. What we need more here in this thing is some real fire of hell and some real threat against sin. Man, I want some good old-fashioned preaching. You have all different viewpoints of what happens when God's Spirit really shows up. I want you to listen to God's Word together in the next few minutes. Whatever we believe about the Holy Spirit, some of you are scared to death of the Spirit, some of you, you're really in tune with the Spirit every single day. Whatever you believe about the Holy Spirit, this is the very first time that the Holy Spirit was given to believers like you. And it would be really wise for us as the birthday of the church, when God gave birth to the church, let's just lay aside all of our prejudices. Some of you love the charismatic movement. Some of you think that it's probably demonic. You big extremes. How are we ever going to have unity about those issues? By listening to God's Spirit, who's in your heart this morning if you know Christ. If you don't know him, he's trying to pull you by listening to his voice. Because I know that the next few minutes as we study the Pentecost, the very first time that the Holy Spirit came, we can find some things that you, when you get through with these next few minutes, you can say, I know that the Holy Spirit does that. I know the Holy Spirit did that. I've learned some things about his character. And I'm going to get some things that can renew spirit in my life. You might be the most depressed, cynical person in Malaise. You might be worse than Jimmy Carter when we had just blown the delivering our hostages from Iran. You might be worse than the deadness and the depression that was on the Nimitz, the aircraft carrier. 
When you get done, you can have wind, fresh wind, fresh fire. It began with a special time. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Jesus, when he began his ministry, promised that he would send the Holy Spirit, but actually, in Dr. Luke's thinking, it went back before that, because John the Baptist, when he was questioned, who are you, Dr. Luke? Who should we be looking to? John, Luke, John the Baptist said this, I'm not even worthy to tie the shoes of the one who is coming because I baptize you with water. In essence, John the Baptist says that small potatoes because when the one that I'm pointing to you comes, he's going to baptize you not with water, but he's going to baptize you with, with fire. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That was in the beginning story of the book of Luke. As the book of Luke closes, Jesus is gathered together with his 11 disciples because Judas is now left. And Jesus told them at the end of the book of Luke, Luke records, Jesus told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem because the gift that the father said would be given is going to be given. In our study so far of the book of Acts, Jesus, during the 40 days after he rose from the dead, that he laid the foundation and talked to these 11 disciples, talked to the 120, talked about this little group that had committed themselves to him, Jesus stressed, very importantly, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. I want you to wait here at Jerusalem because you're going to receive power when God's Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon you, he will give you the power to witness. You're going to witness in Jerusalem. You're going to witness in Samaria. Then you're going to witness to the uttermost parts of the earth. Then Jesus ascended to heaven, and the angels come and say, why are you sitting there looking up into the heaven? You need to wait for the promise that God promised to give to you. And Acts chapter 2 is that time. It was the next big time that the Jewish people in the first century gathered together in Jerusalem. They gathered three times a year. The first time was when the barley harvest came in the spring. That was the Passover time. You know it as our Easter because that's when we celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on that Easter Sunday. If you were from an ancient Jewish culture, you would connect that like every good Jewish farmer. That's when the barley harvest came in. And you would bring your first fruits and you'd celebrate the deliverance of Israel, God protecting the firstborn, the Passover. As believers, now you know that it was all about the Passover and the sacrifice of the lamb and putting the blood on the door was all a picture of what your Savior would do on Calvary. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God that takes away this in the world. Then all the people would go home. They would let 50 days go by, a month and three quarters. You're Westerners. You run your life on your watch. Some of you are doing that right now. Jewish people for centuries, until the watch was developed, became really accurate, and the modern world was born. In the ancient world, they went with the rhythms of the seasons, the rhythms of the harvest. The next big rhythm of the harvest was, as Texans, we can all understand this, it's when the weed harvest came in. In Palestine, the weed harvest came in 50 days after Passover. And that was the next big feast when everybody took time out, they harvested the wheat, then they brought the first fruits, and then they celebrated in Israel again. That's the time 
Because believers are going to come, Jewish people that worship the great I am in the Old Testament are going to come from all over the Roman Empire. And that's going to be very important. This is the time where from as far as I can go in the east to as far as I can go in the west, Jewish people are gathering together. Another thing I can say to you about the Feast of Pentecost, and some of you are saying, well, where does Pentecost come from? It just is 50. It's just a, uh, the Hebrew word is 50, and there's a Greek word that sounds very much like Pentecost that means 50. It just means 50 days after Passover, after the Sunday after Passover. So it's the first day of the week, which becomes very significant for us, but that's where Pentecost comes from. In later Judaism, I, it, it's possible that it goes back to the first century, but I wouldn't swear on it. But if you look at the book of Exodus, you have the Passover. It takes about 50 days to have the law given at Mount Sinai. You can put Exodus 19.1 and put the timing together. And so what happened, I know in historical Judaism, like if you were Orthodox Jews, when you think of the Feast of Pentecost, you celebrate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now that is important. Because at Mount Sinai, when God came down the mountain and the children of Israel looked at the mountain, what did they see? Did anybody remember what they saw? They saw fire. They saw a storm. They saw wind. In fact, it was so terrifying that they weren't able to even get near the stone. They had to cleanse themselves, take a bath. They were not allowed to touch the mountain. You all have seen the Ten Commandments where Moses goes up into the storm clouds, up on top of the mountain. So if you were a Hebrew audience, one thing I know for sure, the idea of Sinai, it's a theophany. It's when the powerful winds of the great I am blow. Those of you that are young people that love drama, your heavenly father loves drama. So when he reveals the law, it was just like watching a great big thunderstorm come in and the powerful wind begins to blow. All of us are still enamored by that. If you're like me, you don't go run and hide. When I hear there's a tornado coming, I run outside because I want to see it. Anybody like that? Because there's something enamoring about the powerful wind. And I love telling my East Coast friends about the powerful Texas winds that blow and the big storm clouds. Where I was raised, it just suddenly clobbers you over the next mountain. But here I can watch it coming for 60 miles and it's exciting. And then the fire is going off, the lightning. And it's, it's one of the most dramatic events that nature puts on. God is the author of all that, and at Mount Sinai, he gave fire and wind and a great cloud. That's the time that's in their mind. Only God, this time, is not going to give ten tablets of stone. This time, he's going to write his law on your heart and mine. What an incredible difference. So that's the time. The time is the time when God is going to fulfill the promise. God always fulfills his promise in his time. When Jesus said, wait here, I'm sitting in the upper room with the 120. We are praying. We do the thing with Mattathias. And I'm sure some of the people are going there, man, when is, I'm going, I got to go fishing. I got to go do something. The Lord said to wait. 120 people obeyed. And when the Feast of Pentecost came, it was time. One of the things we all need to learn, I need to learn it, you need to learn it, we need to learn about God's time and wait for God's time and feel the rhythms of God's time. 
What Dr. Luke tells us next is the incredible thing is he tells us the very first time that God gave his greatest gift to you. If you know Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that you should love the next few verses because the greatest gift, some of you are weak emotionally. You're not up. My dad woke up in the morning singing. Many of you don't wake up. My dad had one of the strongest constitutions and spirits I've ever known. When I was a little kid, Word of Life would be $300,000 behind, which back in the 50s, that was a ton of money. And my dad would be singing, oh, this is the day the Lord has made. He'd be just thrilled to death. And he'd raise $300,000 so positively talking to his friends. I'm not like that in my own human strength. My idea is, man, we're going in the tank. There's no way that it can happen. What are you like? Maybe today, your spirit, you're saying, man, I just don't think I can go another step. Well, you need to really listen. You need to really listen to what, what God reveals because he reveals the greatest gift is now given to his church. Look what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, suddenly, God loves to surprise us. Suddenly, the word there is, it's all of a sudden, while they're in the upper room, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. All of you as Texans should love that. You know the sound. How many of you have ever heard the sound of a rushing violent wind? Anybody ever heard of that? If you were from the island of the South Pacific, I'd be sitting there going, man, when a hurricane hits, we know. But as Texans, we live with it. We might have the violent rushing wind. It's over 70 degrees this morning. It's going to be 18. And what's going to happen before that big front gets down here from the Arctic Circle? There's going to be a violent rushing wind. We call it opening up the Blue Northerner. It's like somebody opened up the back door and whoosh. You all understand that. So as we're sitting there, what happened was suddenly the room where they were was filled with a violent rushing wind. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus said that those that are born of the Spirit, it's like the wind. And the Spirit blows wherever it desires. One thing I want all of you to understand, no matter what your meteorologist tells us, they don't have control of the wind. There's nobody on planet Earth that on two seconds says, you know what, I've decided I don't want an Arctic blast from the north. We're going to just stop it. We're going to get all the engineers, all the scientists, and we're going to stop this. No wind in Texas. And we're going to start a movement against the wind. You're all laughing. Why? Because one thing about the wind, with all of our scientific advancements, we still don't know where it comes from and where it's going. And it might just be that we don't even get an Arctic blast. Because I sure wouldn't bet my life on it, because that's one of the characters of the wind. And God is saying, none of us in this room really have control over the Spirit. And the word in Hebrew, ruach, and the word in Greek, pneuma, is the wind. And one thing I want you to know, that he is a violent, powerful wind. And if you don't know Jesus, he's a wind of judgment that wants to pull you and to convict you and to draw in your relationship with himself. If you have come to the cross and you've come to the resurrection, then he's a powerful wind that's bigger than your own personal spirit. 
And he's bigger than your family situation. He's bigger than your emotions. He's bigger than our church family could ever imagine. He's bigger than anyone we could ever imagine. And we can't control him. We need to learn to respond to him and to trust him and believe in him. God is telling us at the very beginning, a sound like a blowing violent wind. Notice that it comes from heaven. When we build God's family, it's not going to be because we use gigantic billboards. Nothing wrong with that. It's not going to be because we use all the media. Nothing wrong with that. But don't ever trust it. Don't ever put all your confidence in that. Because the wind has to come from heaven. God is reminding us he's sovereign in building the body of Christ around the world. The violent rushing wind comes from heaven. It says, and they were, it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So the idea is that they're in this upper room, they're in this house, and Luke doesn't make a really big deal about exactly where they were. They weren't in the temple. Later we transfer in the sermon that Peter's going to give us, and our next passage is going to be with a whole group of people that he gathered. But right now we're still gathered, huddling with a group of believers that trust in Jesus. It says in verse, in the next verse, when we have a second manifestation of this period, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. It doesn't say that it was tongues of fire. So it doesn't mean if you put your hand on top of your head that you'd burn your hand. It's like tongues of fire. That's the way you would describe it. This powerful rushing sound enters the room. It's very dramatic. And then as you start to look around, you see flaming fire in a theophany. When God revealed himself, fire is often a part of it. And Luke graphically betrays it. It's like fire, and fire, when it's going, does look like tongues. And I want you to see that it says that the tongues of fire rest on every single head. Very important. The fire doesn't skip. You didn't pray long enough. You're not nearly as gifted. So the fire has skipped you. It's very important to understand because some of you have been taught that you need to pray through. Only special, powerful, gifted people receive the Spirit. Some of you have been taught that you have to work to receive it. You need to learn a technique about how the Spirit comes upon you. This is at the very beginning. This is the ultimate beginning Pentecost. And I want you to see that no human being was in control of it. There's no techniques that are used. There's nothing you need to learn. They were just together, the whole 120, and they are praying and they're obeying the Lord. But the Holy Spirit becomes individually. The picture here is that there's flames of fire, but they come to rest on every single head. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit were we all baptized by the Holy Spirit, whether slave or free. If somebody asks you this week, have you been baptized with the Spirit? If you have received Jesus into your heart, how many of you have trusted that he died on the cross for your sins? How many of you have trusted that he rose again from the dead? I don't want you ever, ever, ever to be intimidated by the question, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Because the original Pentecost, all those, this is the very first time that the Spirit was given. There has to be a beginning to the body of Christ. And in the first time, all of those that had trusted the Messiah, believed in the cross, believed in his resurrection, that individual tongues of fire rested on every one of their heads, symbolizing the Holy Spirit came into every one of their lives. 
in the theology of all the New Testament, all believers that have genuinely trusted Jesus are baptized by the Spirit. That's, Ephesians 1 says, that's the seal. That's God's mark, his presence in your life. It's one of his most precious gifts. No one is excluded. Very powerful, important idea. It says they were all, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire and separated, and they came to rest on each one of them. All of them, what did they do? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke isn't technical. In this context, he uses the word filling for the baptism of the Spirit. We're going to have later on in the book, fresh fillings, fresh control of the Spirit. The word filling, it's, it's like some of you know exactly what it means to be filled with alcohol. Anybody here know what it means to be really filled with alcohol? Any of you know what it means to be filled with anger? Some of you this week have been filled with anger. A spirit of anger. Some of you have been filled with jealousy. You are experts on what it means to be filled with jealousy. If you'll analyze the control, the influence, and then say, I want to be filled with the spirit. It's the same kind of deal. When I'm at a party, like one of those Super Bowl parties we're talking about, and everybody drinks too much, I can see the spirits of alcohol. A woman that wouldn't, that would never say boo, they're quiet and they're reserved. Suddenly, they drink a couple glasses of wine and they become the life of the party. They are controlled. They are now under the influence. If they keep doing it, you're going to have to carry them out. Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, which will slowly drain your life, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. There is similarity. When God's Holy Spirit really is upon the people, when he's really moving in their heart, it has some of the, some people will start to say, man, they're so filled with joy. They're so filled with enthusiasm. They're so filled with insight and power. It's similar. And that's what's happening here. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It means that they came under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, what was the first manifestation in the giving, in the birthday of the church? What was the first manifestation of the Spirit? It says they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, some of you that are from a charismatic background, you've been exposed, and I've often been in services where suddenly, like I've been with groups where 20 people start speaking languages. And I know a little bit of French. I can tell when I hear French. I can read Hebrew. I can read Greek. But I've been with kids and suddenly they all start speaking a language and it's like no language I've ever heard on earth. It's a heavenly language, they tell me. And they'll all speak it at once. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 possibly speaks about that. I want you to know that I can show you that that took place in Dionysian Greek worship. Paul's talking about the fact that it was taking place in Corinth. Today, I'm not going to speak to you about that ecstatic heavenly utterance. I also want you to know that I've been in situations where people didn't know Jesus at all, and they speak just like that. If I was a Jewish psychiatrist, I would have all kinds of explanations for what happens when you do that. And I'm not saying at all that I don't believe that none of it is from the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to focus on in this passage, because one thing Dr. Luke makes really, really clear When the Holy Spirit was first given, and it says they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, notice the miracle 
is in their speaking. Some of you have been taught, no, the miracle was in the hearing. They all spoke this heavenly language, and the miracle was in the hearing. That would mean that the Holy Spirit came upon a whole group of unbelieving people that haven't met Jesus yet and gave them the gift of interpretation. That's not what Luke is saying. The gift of interpretation in the first century church is a beautiful gift. But it's the first Pentecost, and this is very important because it tells you the Spirit's heart. At the first Pentecost, the Holy Spirit didn't enable them to do ecstatic, heavenly languages. They spoke earthly languages. Say, Dave, how do you know that? Look what he goes on and says. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, and you say, well, Dave, how do you answer that question? Keep reading the text. So now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews. So Dr. Luke tells us that a whole bunch of devout, worshiping Jews, they wouldn't come all the way from all over the empire if they weren't devout. It says God-fearing Jews. It doesn't say that they're believers in the Messiah. They're not. We're going to find out when Peter preaches to them. 3,000 of them need to believe in the Messiah, change their minds about Jesus. But they are good Jews. It says they came from every nation under heaven. That's very, very important. Because that's God's heart through his spirit. Very important. So as the, as the Holy Spirit's given, the wind comes, the fire comes, the 120 are speaking languages suddenly by a direct miraculous gift from the Spirit. Now, Dr. Luke can explain to us why the Spirit did that and what's going to be the result. He said, Jews from every nation under heaven came. And when they heard this sound, they heard probably the sound of the wind. They also heard these 120 speaking a lot of different languages. Have you ever been in a room like the United Nations where everybody's speaking a different language? What does it sound like when you're in the other room? Like I've been in prayer meetings where we had people from all over the world and they have a part of the service where, where everyone prayed in their language all at once. It's a marvelous experience. But if you're in another room, it's a loud noise, but it sounds like gobbledygook. You have no idea, especially if you haven't studied those languages. That's what the crowd is hearing. So that they heard, when they heard the sound, a crowd came together. And they're bewildered. They don't understand what's going on because each, and this is what they were bewildered, were bewildered about. Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. That's the miracle. They go on and say that they were utterly amazed. Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears from his own native language? There's Parthians and Medes and Elamites. That is from the farthest corners of the Eastern world. The Parthians were attacking the Roman Empire on the Eastern border. So there's Jews that live in Parthia that have come to the thing. The Medes are in the northern part of Iraq and Iran. The Elamites are east of Baghdad that you're all familiar with. That's where the Elamites were from. Then he tells you, I'm talking about the residents of Mesopotamia. That's the whole Fertile Crescent. That would be Syria and it would be modern-day Iraq and Iran. Then he talks about where they're located, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. They take us into Asian Minor, modern-day Turkey, which Luke is going to focus a whole lot of the missionary journeys of Paul on. Then we go down to the south. Egypt is so much in our minds this morning. So there were Jews living in Alexandria, probably a million Jews living in Alexandria. And parts of Libya, that's northern Africa, near Cyrene. He also mentions Cretans which it says all Cretans are liars. That's the island of Crete. Didn't have a very good reputation. Arabs would be the Nabataean world. Aretas IV was the ruler there. It's what you all saw in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Petra. That was the capital of this Arabian kingdom. 
very powerful. There were Jews that were Arabs that came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. You get the idea. Luke is describing people from all over, and he ends up where the book is going to end up, in the city of Rome, which was the capital of the ancient world. What's the miracle? The miracle was not that they were speaking a heavenly language, but it's focused on the horizontal languages. And God is revealing at Babel, at Babel, God confounded the languages in Genesis chapter 11 and scattered the nation. When his people disobeyed, the northern kingdom went to the eastern part of the empire. And Dr. Luke is telling us some of those 10 tribes aren't lost. They've now come to Jerusalem and they're now speaking all of these foreign languages. They're their heart languages now. All the languages. They didn't have to speak. The Holy Spirit didn't have to enable them to speak in all these different languages because they couldn't communicate. Everybody in the East spoke Aramaic. East of Jerusalem, everybody was fluent in Aramaic. West of Jerusalem, everybody was fluent in Greek. And Peter's going to give a message in Greek. And probably both sides were bilingual and spoke fluently in Aramaic and Greek. The Holy Spirit didn't come upon the 120 and enable them to speak all these different dialects. Because that was the only way to talk to them. He did it because God was sharing. You've been wandering. You were dispersed. Babel was the time that I confounded the languages. But now... I'm enabling my spirit-filled people to speak in your heart language, the language you were born in. Dr. Luke emphasized it's the languages that they were born in. If you were born in Mexico, your heart language is Spanish. And you might speak fluent English, but when you're in love, you want to speak Spanish because that's the language of your heart. Isn't it incredible that the Holy Spirit, when it was first given, enabled all these 120 to speak in the heart language. You know what God was saying? You've been dispersed, but I'm coming after you. I'm going to come to every single part of this empire. In fact, you have gathered together in Jerusalem, and now the Messiah has come, the day of cursing, the day of judgment. Now the one that I promised Abraham would bring a blessing to the nations, he's now here and he has ascended to heaven, and he has conquered death, and I want to bring that message to all the world. Everyone declares the wonderful, wonderful deeds of God. That's what God's Holy Spirit wants to do. One of the things that all of us can agree on, when God's Holy Spirit comes upon you, all of you should declare the wonderful deeds of God, and the next time we get together, Peter is going to give us the most wonderful deeds of God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And you crucified him. But God didn't let him stay dead. He rose from the dead. And now anyone that will just change their minds about Jesus and receive him, they can live forever and ever. And the days of refreshing will come. The wind and the fire and the presence of God will come to live in your life. Luke closes this passage by saying that there's two responses. It says, some of them said, we are hearing them declaring the wonders of God, the miraculous, powerful deeds of God in our own languages. We're amazed and perplexed. And they said, what does this mean? So they're ready for Peter's message. 
Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. So you have those that say, what does this mean? Maybe some of you are like that. You're ready to find out what does all this mean. Some of you and some of the people you meet this week will mock. And then some of you are like the 120. You've received the Spirit. When we hear Dr. Luke speaking, you're in one of those three groups. You're either part of the 120 and you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit and the Lord this morning wants to cause you to be reminded you have fresh wind. You have fresh fire. You have fresh power. And the Holy Spirit's not going to fail you. He has never, never failed. He hasn't failed any believer ever. So if you're in a malaise today, Dr. Luke is saying, Remember, you've been baptized with the wind of God's presence, with the fire of his presence. And you can go out this week and declare the wonderful, miraculous deeds of God. If you haven't come to Jesus yet, then you could be in the crowd that you're saying, tell us what this means. The group that I'm the most scared about, and you can even be raised in our church, some people say it's all just a bunch of drunkenness. It's all foolishness. Those are the three responses. You go out this week, don't get discouraged. I've heard of kids this week that have been ridiculed and mocked. You're an idiot for believing in Jesus. And these kids hung in there and said, Jesus told me I'd be mocked. And some of you have been able to encourage them. That's what this text is saying. When the first gift of the Holy Spirit came, not everybody applauded. Some were filled. Some questioned, what does this mean? And others ridiculed. 